Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's fourth Friday Nature Connection show. It's a show that Nancy and I do in collaboration with our friend Margot Carrera. She's an amazing nature photographer, and she'll be back for the next one. So uh, very excited, and Nancy as well. And as you know, Nancy and I travel full-time documenting parks and public lands. And um, we're very excited because today we're going to talk about a movement of getting kids having their own national park in their backyard. And uh, very excited to welcome Doug Tallamy. He's an ecologist and professor in the Department of Etymology and Wildlife Ecology at the University of Delaware. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Nature's Best Hope. And he's joining us to talk about how we can inspire the next generation of conservationists. His latest book is Nature's Best Hope, the Young Reader's Edition, How You Can Save the World in Your Own Yard. It's out now through Timber Press. So get it where you get your book. So welcome, Dr. Tellamy. How are you doing today? Thank you. It is wonderful to be here, Lisa. Uh, glad to have you here. We're very excited about it because we're always talking about gardens being such an important thing. Even if you're in an apartment, what you can do on your patio or balcony. Um, right because of dead zones we always look at like if we don't start and i'm this way about businesses and corporations and industrial parks bed and breakfast restaurants everybody needs to be growing something so that there's not a dead zone for our wildlife so this is cool exactly yeah i would say every bit of conservation we do outside of parks and preserves helps conservation inside of parks and preserves because right yeah. now, I can say you get outside the park and it's a, it's no man's land. No, nothing can live there. So that's got to change. Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting because most of the national parks are surrounded by national forests. So it gives some kind of buffer. Yet there's different rules and regulations, as you yeah, <laughs> as we yeah, know. Some, we're, some are pretty isolated. They've got. Yeah, yeah, some are. But um, when it gets into, I mean, we need these like wildlife corridors. I mean, just even. You know, Nancy and I talk about this as we drive. We're like, oh, this is the dead armadillo highway. This is a dead deer highway. And yeah. everybody's like, why? Why are these wildlife coming here? But we've, we're the ones encroaching, aren't we? That's right. That's right. We have gone there. Yeah. Where else are they going to go? You know, we've had this idea that humans and nature can't coexist. And, and where humans are, nature someplace else. That's not the future because humans are everywhere now. So mm. if we keep up with that, then we've we've you know relegated nature to another planet. I mean, uh, and what mm. people don't appreciate is that we need healthy ecosystems. We need nature, and we need it everywhere, not just in parks and preserves, because it creates the life support that keeps us around. So it's mm -hmm. it, being nice to nature is a selfish act on our part. We absolutely need it. Mm -hmm. And the the other thing too is right now with climate change, um, this is also an issue, and. You look at kids now and they've got a lot on their shoulders, right? A lot of pressure for schools. You're a professor, you know what everybody's going through. But for kids also, there's, I think, a lot of fear of what does their future look like? And I think the only way to get through that fear is to take some kind of action and getting out in your garden and maybe away from your phone unless you're using the iNaturalist app Seek. Sorry, I love that app. Or something like that, or eBird through Cornell or, you know, um, it, it's really a good thing for kids to have some sunshine, some, you know, vitamin D and actually take action and be part of the the fix 
instead yeah. of being fearful. Exactly. Uh, and that is, you know, that's, I call it nature's best hope. You are nature's best hope. The kids are nature's best hope. We're all nature's best hope. And there is something we can do about the biodiversity crisis. That's the message of the entire book. Let's talk about what biodiversity is. Um, that is something uh, very much a, a thing for Nancy and I. Um, we we lived in Kenya, South Africa, Mexico, England, all over the world. And now we're, you know, we're just, we're, we're addicted to nature. And um, when Nancy first went to Kenya, um, it was in the mid 70s. And at that point, you could go to a watering hole and see 30 to 50 species immediately at this watering hole. Birds, wildlife from crocodiles to hippos to different kinds of antelope. Um, and now, and you got to think plants. And that's something I really want to touch on the importance of plants, because we often talk about save the wildlife, but we forget their habitat. But now when we see photos of Kenya, those same watering holes, it's like looking at Mount Kilimanjaro, there's barely any snow left on it compared. And we're maybe seeing five to 10 species versus those 30 to 35. So the 30 to 35 is the biodiversity you're looking for, right? But you can define biodiversity in lots of ways, but typically people are talking about just the number of species, the diversity of species that are around. It's, it's a very good index. Um, so yeah, if you have five species in, in a habitat versus 35 species, the one with 35 species is much more diverse. There's a lot more biodiversity there. And it comes in all sizes from viruses all the way up to elephants. All of them are part of the biodiversity mm. community. Okay, so let's take a backyard. Um, right now we're in um, Maquoketa, Iowa. <laughs> Got to get that spelling or pronunciation correct. And we're on a big piece of land. Um, and the lady here that we're, we're caretaking her house right now, and her backyard is for the birds. It's for the wildlife this morning. I saw the deer run by the window. I'm like, why are the deer running? I went out the front, there's a coyote. You go back really? outside, there's all these birds. I mean, she's got like rose-breasted grosbeak that I've never seen. Um, we're like, oh my gosh, there's a rose-breasted grosbeak. There's Baltimore Orioles, baby Baltimore Orioles. There's blue jays, two types of woodpeckers, all these new things. But then she's got a pond. So she's got food, shelter, the pond. But the pond has also things growing. So then there's just all these different kinds of plants and wildflowers and a ton of bugs. And so we're going, God, there's so many bugs. But I thought, and going through your book, that's a sign of good stuff, right? If there's a lot of bugs. Why those birds are there. 96% of our terrestrial birds rear their young on insects. A lot of insects. Thousands and thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of, of baby bird. Baby birds can't eat seeds. Only 4% of our, our birds can, can uh, eat seeds as babies. So putting out a bird feeder does not help reproduction at all. You need to, to plant the plants that generate the insects that birds can then use to reproduce. So I'm not kidding. Six to 9,000 caterpillars to make one clutch of chickadees, a bird that weighs a third of an ounce. So where are those caterpillars going to come from? They're going to come from the plants you put in your yard. And it doesn't have to be the backyard. It can be the front yard too. Um, oak trees, for example, very best caterpillar producers out there. Mm. And chickadee is going to forage about 50 meters from its nest. So it has to get the food from your yard if it's going to breed in your yard. Uh, and, and, um, and then after they leave the nest, 
the parents continue to feed them caterpillars another 21 days. So you're really talking about tens of thousands of caterpillars to make one clutch of, of baby birds. Oh. And that's why our plant choice is so important. You've got to choose the plants that make those caterpillars. And when you choose an ornamental plant from Asia, like crepe myrtle or ginkgo or privet or burning bush or barberry or all the things we typically landscape with, they don't make any caterpillars. Mm. So you're not helping the food web. You're not putting any energy into the local food web. Mm. When you when you think plants are just decorations, they're much more than that. So milkweed, milkweed's a good thing? Milkweed's a good thing for monarchs and the few things that are milkweed specialists. But milkweed's a very toxic plant. And I'm glad you brought it up because it, it illustrates host plant specialization. The reason monarchs can eat milkweeds is because they've been associated with the milkweed lineage for millions of years, and they have the adaptations necessary to get around those plant defenses. So milkweeds are full of cardiac glycosides. Um, they're full of, of milky latex sap. That's what mm -hmm. comes out when you break the leaf. When that ex is exposed to air, it it gels, it forms a gum. And if it gets on a caterpillar's mouth parts, it glues its mouth shut. It's a very effective defense. So how do monarchs eat milkweed? Well, they have to block the flow of that latex sap and they do it by snipping through the vein of the leaf first. It's a behavioral adaptation that works really well, but most other insects haven't figured out how to do that. So because they have those specialized adaptations, they have access to a plant that most other insects can't eat. And 90% of the insects that eat plants are similarly specialized on particular plants. If you don't have the plants they're specialists on, you don't have those insects. So if oh. you take the weeds out of your yard, the monarch's not going to start to eat your, your hostas. Can't do it. It's locked into eating milkweeds. And that's why using plants from other countries doesn't work because our insects have not adapted to them. And it takes a long, long time for that to happen. Well, milkweed is really neat because like I know in... Uh, when we were based in Tucson, Arizona, and this is the beauty of us traveling, and we pet sit and caretake homes as we go because we can do our interviews and work. So it's part of being a digital nomad, but it's awesome because we're in backyards across the country. So milkweed, like in Colorado, and we were just in Nashville, there's that big, beautiful, spiky plant with the, you know, the big balls of flowers. And then when we were in Tucson, they were vines and little flowers. So the milkweed can come in so many different ways. I think there's something like 90 species of milkweeds in this country. So wow. It's, it's much more than the common one we see in the East. So this is interesting about how they eat that, you know, because even we've done things on like koala bears for those in Australia that they need all these special kinds of leaves within the eucalyptus family. And if they don't have those and they need all kinds to eat, you know, so it's kind of similar. So, when you're going into caterpillars, what about everybody wants to kill the caterpillar? Oh, the caterpillar is going to get to my tomato. The caterpillar. So yeah, what? Well, <laughs> then they're killing. They're killing bird food, and they're killing uh, the birds that depend on that. Not just birds. Caterpillars transfer more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of plant eater. So they're the bread and butter of your terrestrial food webs. So that you can measure the health of your 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 local diversity by knowing the number of caterpillar species that your plants are, are making. That makes it fun for kids though, because who doesn't like to watch caterpillars? Exactly. Go out and find them. Mm. There are a lot of them. There, there are about 12,000 named species of caterpillars in this country alone. Wow. So, so you should be able to find them, but you know, there's fewer and fewer all the time. 
We have lights on at night that attracts the moths and kills them. And the moths are what, what create the caterpillars. Most of the, the caterpillars fueling the food web are moths. They're not butterflies. Butterflies are bad tasting day flying moths. <laughs> the reason they can fly during the day is because most of them don't taste dead and the birds leave them alone. So we're really depending on, on the moths. You know, the people say, oh, they're brown and ugly. Well, they're really important in terms of getting that energy from plants to other animals. Remember, it's plants that are capturing energy from the sun and turning it into food. That's ah. their major job. That's the food that supports just about all the animals on the planet. And if you don't get that food to the animals, you don't have any animals. Oh. And if you don't have any animals, you don't have a functional ecosystem. And if you don't have functional ecosystems, you don't have humans. Oh. That's the part we've got to focus on. And so for kids, when they get involved in growing, of course, we always talk about them growing, uh, growing your own food, which is also a healthy, good thing for kids to learn because they may eat their vegetables and we aren't trucking things in from miles away and hopefully um, doing it organically, right? And without pesticides for all of what we're talking about. Um, but getting them to actually plant the right plants, this becomes a family project, right? And something that we have conversations around the dinner table um, through kids. What I've seen is kids often are teaching the adults. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're great lobbyists for, for their parents. And this is how we ought to do it. So the kids can say, well, you know, we've got a lot of lawn in our yard. That's not supporting anything. Can we reduce the area of lawn, put in some plants that are, are supporting? Would you give me permission to plant an oak tree? It doesn't cost a thing. I'm going to get an acorn and plant it. And, and that tree, that acorn will grow into a big tree. When we moved into our house 20 years ago, 21 years ago, uh, I planted a lot of acorns found them, planted them. And those trees are over 60 feet tall now. So wow. it, was, it was free. And, and, you know, 20 years sounds like a long time, but it's not, you know, you us old folks know that it goes by really quickly. Yeah. Uh, so the kids can do that. They can, they can put in pollinator gardens. Um, they can convince their parents uh, not to hire a lawn care service because they are putting down pesticides and herbicides. Uh, you know, I talk about four things that every landscape needs to do. Every landscape needs to support pollinators. Every landscape needs to support a food web, have plants that pass on their energy. Every landscape has to manage the watershed that it's in. Cool. And every landscape has to sequester carbon, pull carbon out of the atmosphere and tie it up in plants and then pump it into the, the soil. And you can look at your where you live, both your front yard and your backyard and say, how well are they doing that? Can I put a plant that's going to improve one or, or more of those functions into my yard? Great challenge for kids. And they say, well, what's the best plant? This is, this is where they can actually use their phone and, their, and, and the internet to find out. There's a wonderful website on the National Wildlife Federation website called Native Plant Finder. They can go to that and put in their zip code and the best plants for their county will pop up. Then they know, okay, this is what I got to get. And, and, uh, you know, it's it's not something you do in a weekend. It's it's a lifetime hobby to to make wherever you are a better place for nature. Mm. I think, and when you say challenge, I think kids like a good challenge. That's a good way to to present it. Even it's like here's yeah. a challenge. You know, it's summertime right now is perfect. Let's start a summer challenge. Start it from all ages. Get going, and parents help. And the the National Wildlife Federation. I know we've done shows on it. You can get a certified wildlife habitat. You get a little flag when you do this, everything you're talking about. But I think with this too, not only are we helping uh, not have these dead zones, 
but aren't we teaching kids science through doing this? Yeah. Or they're teaching themselves, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, science is, it's, it's hypothesis testing. It's really, I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to design an experiment to answer that question, or at least move me in the direction of answering it. That's all science is. A lot of people, and that's so important these days because the public seems to think science is, is personal opinion. Yeah. You, you do an experiment, you get the numbers and say, this is what that experiment told me. Mm-hmm. And very important for the kids to learn that. <clears throat> and the simplest questions can be really hard to answer when you move out into the field, you know, you set up a little experiment, then it rains and it ruins it or something happens. But field field science can be a challenge. Um, and it's also a wonderful way for kids to take a look at their future. Mm-hmm. Not everybody likes research and it has nothing to do with how smart you are. Uh, it has to do with the way your your brain works. So trying to actually do some little research projects when you're young will tell you, gee, I, I really like this or oh, that's a turnoff. I don't want to do that. And then it gives you a direction. Should I go to, to you know, graduate school after college or not? Mm. Um, so all of this is is positive stuff. The best thing I, I think is getting out and, and being exposed to the natural world mm. will help you stop fearing it. You know, right now, if you listen to the news, it sounds like if you go outside, you're going to you're going to die. You're going to get mm-hmm. West Nile virus or Zika virus or the cougar is going to eat you or or something terrible. Yeah, yeah. Happen. The cougar. Yeah, if you're in L.A., yeah, that's, that's it. Every, everything the, the media talks about is is scary. And I know it's sensationalism and they get viewers. The murder hornet. A good example. Um, that's not what nature is. You know. I want them to fall in love with nature. Well, them- well, bees and Africanized bees, they think, oh, that's it. Like you're going to get, you have bees, your house is going to be swarmed. They're going to live in your house. But if you create a habitat that is more on the natural side and do a bee house, bat houses, bats, that's one thing I really think we need to really focus on is bats, yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, those kind of pollinators too. And, um, you know, people get scared of bats. They're scared of bees and yet they're really important bees are we're, we're in a crucial you know moment right now in needing bees for our food and everything we always have needed bees you know and not just the honeybee we've got four thousand species of native bees that did all the pollination on this planet before we brought over the around this in this country before we brought up the, the honeybee and we don't want to lose them they're all in trouble Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've taken away the plants they need. And the most places we've taken them away are on the edges of agriculture. Iowa is a perfect example. And you, you, you look at the rows of corn and soybeans, and in most fields, what's next to the road is a strip of grass. That used to be milkweeds and asters and goldenrods and, and, and evening primrose and all the things that supported our native bees and the monarch not long ago. You know, in 1976, which wasn't that long ago, we recorded the highest numbers of monarchs ever. And agriculture had been in Iowa 100 years at that point. So they definitely can get along if we put their host plants back and stop poisoning them with things Mm. that don't be there. Mm. And I also think um, the way it's getting more diversity in agriculture itself, like if they have more diversity that will also support biodiversity in the natural world, wouldn't they? Of course. There's a, a new idea, relatively new idea called pollinator strips, where you, you put these strips of pollinator plants right through the corn and right through the soybeans, um, perpendicular to the flow of water off that land. So it intercepts topsoil that's being washed away. It intercepts nutrients 
that wow. are being carried away. Um, and, and of course it supports the, the pollinators. Uh, and, and you say, well, the farmer's gonna lose some land if you do that. No, because uh, USDA CRP programs, the CREP programs will help, help pay for that. It'll offset that. So it's positive. It reduces the flow of nutrients into the Mississippi, which then goes down to the Gulf and creates a dead zone. Um, it helps yeah. the it helps the farmer with more pollinators. It helps. It helps everything. It's a win-win all the way around. These pollinator gardens, I think, are, are so crucial. We see them actually in the Midwest more than ever in rest areas on the road yeah, on the highways. And when I started seeing these, I get excited. I'm actually going to have to do a map to show people this because there, you know. There should be pride over rest areas. I actually want to do a whole radio show on rest areas because it's a place where the public get out. They spend time to relax, rejuvenate mm -hmm. on the road. Yeah, use the rest area, all that. But picnic. But when you have a garden and informational things about where you are, I see people learning history, learning maps instead of their phone map. You know, actually yeah. seeing a, a road map. And then you see, you know, we were in a rest area in Missouri recently. For Route 66, and they had a flashing Route 66, like a, a fake neon sign, which was pretty cool. You know, I just prefer the old school, but whatever. I know that's too expensive. But when they have a pollinator garden and it's a summer road trip, the kids are going, wow, look, there's butterflies. There's a Monarch Way station. There's a way to move forward. I just think that um, schools, and I see a lot of schools trying, but can't schools take your book, utilize that as a school project? Because if kids are living in an like apartment complexes, could get together with the kids in the apartment complex, they could do composting, you know, composting, however you want to say it, in different as a community. Yeah. If you don't have the space, they can you know do container gardening um, on their balconies. That helps the pollinators and the monarchs too uh, if they choose the right plants. Um, we have a, a resource on our website, Homegrown National Park dot org that talks Ooh. about container gardening with native plants remember 82 percent of us now live in cities so we can't leave those people out they've got to participate too mm. and and it's hard in cities everything's cement you know so container gardening is the way to go mm. uh, right, we got in, got involved those kids mm. and i hope the schools do take that was the idea with this book people keep saying you should go talk to schools well there's tens of thousands of schools yeah, get, get running. Of me, you know, <laughs> but they all can get this book and get some ideas. Yeah, I think if for kids to have like, I, I love the idea of you using um, the apps that we have. Like, um, and I, I found out about iNaturalist when we were in Asbury Woods in Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm. And they have all these programs. And it was actually created um, from the, the paper guys, a ham Hammermill, I think was the name of, you know, our, our paper that we print out on, on computers. Yeah. Anyway, he went in and realized what he did and said, I got to put some trees back. And he, that's how the woods were formed. And so they have gazillions of trails and they've put in, um, you know, boardwalks through, you know, forest areas and even some meadow and some, you know, I call them the, the marsh or swamp. I like the swamps, swampy areas. <laughs> and uh -huh. it's really cool because it, it's for all accessibility. So if you're in a wheelchair or a mom pushing a stroller, these these are accessible places. And so I was saying to her, oh, this is so cool. Kids can be off of their phones. She says, she said to us, she's like, if you try to banish the phone, you've lost your kid. The way to use the phone and technology is to use these apps. So they, they do exactly what you said to learn 
the plants to learn what bug is this. So she's like, we were going in the wrong way when we just try to banish things from kids. Such a challenge. They're spending three hours a day on their phone. You know, that's, that's there's that's we're supposed to be outside grown. playing. I grew yeah. up playing. I grew up planting plants and watching wildlife. That was my childhood. And I'm I'm like addicted to it. So yeah. it's a kid's being on a phone. It's any chance I get, like as soon as we, we say goodbye here, I'm going back outside to see what birds out there, you know, so it's that's how it is for us. But I wonder about kids now. And that's what I love about your book is and it's fun to read. Actually, I didn't realize it was for kids. I just started reading it and I got into it. And then I realized, oh, it's for kids. But, you know, you were talking about driving across Texas and disaster. I hit a monarch butterfly. Didn't didn't that suck? That sucks. I not just a monarch butterfly. It was one that had flown all the way to Mexico, spent the winter, made it, and was on its way back. Yeah, and I forget where I guess it's Route Ten, but it's going straight across, and the monarchs are going this way. I wonder how many get hit. (sighs) That is rough when that happens. Well, sorry, my microphone went away there for a second. But anyway, I was going to say, with this being for kids, um, tell a little bit some of the projects that kids can do and, and give the website again, too, so people know. Homegrownnationalpark.org. So Homegrown National Park's all one word, .org. Um, you can join Homegrown National Park. That's one thing that kids can do. It's free. All you do is you register your property, where the location, and then the amount of your, your property that you're going to be a good steward of. So maybe you are going to reduce the area of lawn a little bit. Maybe you're going to plant that oak tree or a cherry tree or or something else that's really high up there in in terms of making those caterpillars. Maybe you're going to put in a little pocket prairie or a small pollinator garden. Maybe you're going to put a a single aster in a flower pot. It doesn't matter how little it is. It shows that you understand that you're an important component of the future of conservation and you're doing the best you can. You're a member of Homegrown National Park, and then your little piece of your county is going to light up with a firefly. And you can look and see who else is, is uh, or I mean, you can't see the names, but other people in your county that have, have lit up, how many people are members of Homegrown National Park. Your state is in a competition with other states, and it's color-coded. So the greener it is, the more people are participating. And these are all social media tricks to get everybody to light up, to get the entire country to light up because, uh, because you know, we've got these parks and preserves, but we're still losing species regularly. So what we have to do is conservation outside of parks and preserves on private property mm. where you, everybody can, can participate. I love this. I, I, I love that it lights up and that it's competitive. It's a challenge because then it gets us all like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm going to do it. You know, but and the fireflies, this is something true. We learned um, from uh, Ben, um, he runs firefly.org. I think that's his website, but he's also about creating a certified firefly habitat because he said, we're losing our fireflies. And he said, they're also very important to us, which that's something I wanted to touch on um, when you talk about the food web and how we as humans need these species. So can you make that, can you explain that part about how does a firefly, other than they're really fun to watch, how does that actually help a human being? Well, fireflies, as larvae, are predators that live on the ground in leaf litter. So they, they're predators. They help to keep things in, in balance. Um, 
we shouldn't think about what each individual species does and how it's going to help us. What we think about is, what we should think about is how well is the ecosystem that's pro that's producing our life support. We call them ecosystem services: mm -hmm. the oxygen and the food and the and the weather modification and the carbon sequestration and all the things that the ecosystems do. They keep us alive on planet Earth. They all do it better when there are more species in that ecosystem. As soon as you start taking species away, it becomes more unstable and less productive. It's it's making fewer ecosystem services. So the firefly, the housefly, the mosquito, all these things, we say, well, what good is that for humans? They're all part of this big complicated picture. All of them count. They're interrelated or interacting in ways we can't even think of until you take them away and then you see something else disappear. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's part of a very complex uh, story. And the, the easiest way to think about it is we keep all the pieces. We want to get as many pieces, as many players in our ecosystem so that it functions reliably. When you have, it's called redundancy. So you have several species doing the same thing. Then if you lose one, it's not a disaster. The other species are going to compensate. If you only have one species doing a job and you lose that, then that job's not, not done anymore. And then you start to get ecosystem collapse. And we're seeing this. You're seeing it in Africa. Uh, you're seeing it um, any, you know, yeah. we're, we're California, when you've got these terrible droughts and the mega fires and, and all of these things, it's really wiping out biodiversity. Mm. So, so you, you see things like you said about California, like these wildfires are, are going hotter than they ever have. So climate change is part of it, but there's also bark beetle infestations. And I'm going, well, then if the bark beetles creating an infestation, that, that means we don't have enough birds, right? So that's part of that. Yeah. We created the infestation by suppressing fire, which those are fire climax communities, and they used to burn regularly low ground fires, uh, and all the trees were not even aged. We suppressed fire for 150 years, and now all the trees are the same age. They're all mature. It's exactly what the bark beetles want. So we created this giant, giant source of food for the bark beetles, so of course they explode. If we hadn't stuck our hands in there and started messing things around, it would still be in balance. There were always bark beetles, but you wouldn't have too many of you wouldn't have every tree being a, a mature tree. You'd have young trees, which the bark beetles don't use. Um, sure, climate change is, is not helping at all, um, but it's not the only issue. Of course, we created climate change too. So, <laughs> But, you know, we created these things, these problems. We can fix them. Yeah. And like you said, look at it as a as a positive challenge. Look yeah. at it as what can we do to turn things around and be part of the solution, be part of the positive change. And for kids, that's an exciting thing. I mean, you I it it like I want to do like how many caterpillars can you find? How many species of caterpillars? And caterpillars come in all I can't that's a thing. And then you go look them up and you go, look, it turns into this. This is the coolest thing ever. I mean, all those little hairs are in, sometimes you don't want to touch them, you know, but if you have things like salamanders in your backyard, wouldn't that be cool? I want salamanders. And and I am doing exactly that at, at our house. And I've been doing it for five years. It's taking a picture of every species of caterpillar or moth that I can find. Uh, and our yards was mowed for hay when we moved in. So there wasn't anything. Oh. There. But we put the plants back and I am up to 1,202 species of moths that I have I've taken pictures of so far that have come oh. back. Oh, this That's is amazing. Adding, adding players to my ecosystem all the time. And because most of those are types of bird food, we've recorded 
one species of birds that breed at our house. Wow. Wow. So that's the and other you thing. You put yeah, it back, and, you get to see this. It's 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 motivating. And it's also cool because you can also put it on things like eBird and like I love the iNaturalist because it's also used um by scientists and research and biologists. So you're doing citizen science and that's a way to teach kids like, hey, you're already part of the science work. You're already becoming a scientist by doing this. Data. That's right. Yep. Oh my gosh, it's exciting. One thing too, you talked about um turning off our lights and watching our lights um at night. And we've done shows on this before. And um actually uh Harun Hamedovic, I don't think his name is pronounced right, but he is a photo a night night sky photographer and he um worked with it was fire and ice a, a documentary with matt damon about what happens when we keep our lights on and he's basically saying this is one of the biggest biggest um issues we have in the world especially in cities that we leave our lights on it's not just about seeing stars and and all of that but he goes we're ruining the pollinators right through that and bird migration we're literally killing things and um that I didn't even know birds are migrating over the house at night. They do it at night. That's right. Yeah. It's cooler then. And there's no, there's no predators out after them. Yeah. Light pollution at night is one of the major causes of insect declines around the, the globe. All wow. those insects that, you, that go to the light, most of them don't, don't leave. Um, they, they're, they're killed by the light or something comes and eats them or it keeps them from reproducing. So turning out your light is great. But another thing that works really well is taking the white bulb out of your security light or your over your front porch and putting in a yellow bulb because yellow wavelengths are far less attractive to nocturnal insects. Um, so, so you can still have your light if you really insist on it, uh, but, and you won't be killing all the insects. It's easy. That's a little project the kids can do. Oh, that's cool. And get the parents involved and, and change it up. And cities, that going back to schools and cities, can't they also get on board with this? I mean, right. I would like Parks and Rec to get on board. Come on, let's change out the lights. You know, we don't need, it's it's not fun when you're driving across the country without lights at times, but it is too, you know what I mean? That's what your headlights are for. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just like, slow down, you know, and, and do that. But um, that, that's the other thing is just, we have all these animals. One thing I wanted to touch on is deer because gardeners tend to want to get rid of deer I don't care if they, eat. we used to have deer come in our backyard and we had roses that were there when we first got there. And I love roses. They're still beautiful. You can have, so long as you balance it out with your other natives, right? The deer would come and eat the roses and literally smile. When they eat flowers, they're happy. And I'm like, I can't kill them over that. Like, yeah, the problem is we've got too many deer and it's not healthy for the deer and they're they're destroying okay. the understory of the forest. They're eating all the native, the baby oaks, the native plants that are trying to come up to replace the adult trees. They're eating them all. So now there's nothing to replace the adult trees and they're doing that for decades. Um, you know, there's something called a carrying capacity, the ability of a place to support a certain number of, of individuals. Uh, and the carrying capacity for deer is something like 12 or 15 deer per square mile. Okay. Well, there are a lot of places like where I live in east, southeastern Pennsylvania, there's over 100 deer per square mile. So it's okay. many times over the level that the that area can actually support without them degrading the environment. Um, so it's not healthy for the deer. It's not the deer's fault. We've taken away their predators. So, okay. so 
it's, there's, you know, there's a balance in nature there. You've got plants, you've got things that eat plants, and you've got things that eat the things that eat plants, and it all stays in balance. When you take away the things that eat the things that eat plants, then you get too many of those things, then they eat too many plants, and then it gets out of balance. So that's the big problem. And and because we've got too many deer, we've got Lyme disease. They okay. support the ticks that give us Lyme disease. When I grew up, there was no Lyme disease. There were no deer ticks and there were very few deer. So, you know, we got to keep things in balance. Well, I've I've got wonderful tick bites on me right now. I don't even, I'm going, I'm watching every day going, please don't make me have to go to the doctor. Uh, but, you know, that was hiking around in a battlefield. And, you know, that, you know, there's things that you do not to get that, but I didn't think, but like, so today, this morning, when I saw the deer run and then found the coyote, uh-huh. that's, that's a natural, that's a healthy ecosystem. Exactly. Okay, perfect. Well, Dr. Talamy, thank you so much for what you've written. Um, and I love the, the website. Give it out to everybody again. Uh, homegrownnationalpark.org. So adults can, can I? Can I do it like everywhere we're going, plant something in someone's yard and then join it? Yeah. Uh-oh, here it comes. <laughs> I mean, you have, I suppose you have to get their permission, but. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Oh, 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 the last thing before you go, um, water. You mentioned water. Can you tell people what they need to do in regards to water um, sources? Water sources, you know, everything needs water. Absolutely everything needs water and they need clean water. Uh, particularly birds. So when you put out a, a um, what are they called? Just the old b- uh, bird, bird bath. bath. Uh-huh. Birds don't like bird baths because it's sitting there at stagnant water. What they want is moving water. They like uh, even just a little drip, 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 or a little pump that circulates the water. Because circulating water reminds them of, of cool streams where the water's clean. And then they're really attracted to it. So right now in Southeast Pennsylvania, we're in a big drought and water is, becomes a, a very important component and everything come to it. And of course, in the West, they always want water. So adding a water feature to your yard is, is a great way to bring in wildlife because they all need it, but you got to keep yeah. it clean. That's, a, that's interesting. Well, the moving water helps and that helps also mosquitoes, right? right. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, even here, the pump went out on the fountain and the birds were like, this is not fun. This is not cool. We fixed it. Birds are happy. They like yeah. swooped in. All of them like, get out. It's my turn. It was like into the bird bath, you know, the fountain area, the moving water. That's such a, that's a really good point about that. And I didn't, you know, they're like cats. Cats don't want to stagnant water either. Uh-huh. They want yeah. moving water. They want fresh, clean. So good point. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Nature's Best Hope. Go get it now. Uh, Get it for your kids. Uh, It is Nature's Best Hope, Young Reader's Edition, how you can save the world in your own yard again out through Timber Press. Get it anywhere that you buy books. Thank you so much. And I want to give a shout out to Margot Carrera, who joins us on this show. Uh, You can go to her website, an amazing photographer, everything. She she does so much to uh, help our environment and um, to mitigate, help mitigate uh, climate change and protect nature. So check out our website. It's CarreraFineArtGallery.com. And we're here with the Nature Connection every third Friday. So join us at BigBlendRadio.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.